0: You are listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar, brought to you weekly by Stanford Technology Ventures Program at Stanford University School of Engineering. You know, without further ado, let's welcome John. But I want to tell you that we're welcoming him back to campus. If you, if you notice in, in the handout and, and uh, uh, perhaps online, the, the flyers, he's a, he's a Stanford graduate. What I love about that is he's a graduate of the humanities uh, school, not the engineering school. So it shows that we embrace all schools here uh, in the engineering school. And that was his undergraduate degree. And then, of course, his graduate degree was in the, the law school. So let's give a big welcome to John back to campus. John? Well, thank you, Tom. And I can't tell you guys how delighted I am and honored to be here at the engineering school. You know, I graduated from uh, political science, uh, the humanities, and I just never got near the engineering school. And I also have to tell you, the one degree I regret not getting while I was at Stanford was engineering. So for all of you guys that are getting that degree, uh, it is a phenomenal move. Uh, I will also tell you that uh, it's, it's just fun always to come back campus. I'll give you a little bit of my background. It's, it's, you know, awe-inspiring to be standing here before you as a substitute for Larry Sonsini, um, you know, who is one of the top corporate securities lawyers, not only in the technology industry, but the country. But I feel a little better that I'm standing here uh, as a last lecturer right before finals when I know that the odds of anyone sitting around the campus actually watching this thing are pretty slim. So hopefully everyone's studying for their finals, but we'll watch enough to get the gist of it. But in any event, let me, uh, let me just give you a little bit about my background. And then I want to talk a little bit about the firm and some of the lessons learned, some of the, some of the observations I've made um, through my 20 years here in the Silicon Valley. Uh, My background, a little of which Tom went through, is I actually grew up in the Bay Area uh, in San Francisco. And uh, as I was growing up uh, in elementary, junior high, and high school, because both my, my father went to Cal, and so I grew up an absolute Cal fanatic for baseball, football, basketball, everything. There was not one thing I liked about Stanford. Uh, but I will also tell you that as a senior, I decided to apply to Stanford against every instinct in my body. I got in here. I decided to come. The first day, I totally switched to Stanford football, basketball, baseball. I'm a fanatic fan. And my main point there is you've got to be flexible in life. So I went on I did the poli-sci major and then decided that I loved the university so much and I was actually teaching speech and debate to undergraduates at the time that uh, I decided to stay for law school at Stanford. And I wish I could tell you that I was a visionary then and I was sitting over there at the law school and, you know, looked around and saw what was going on in the Silicon Valley and said, hey, you know, this place is unbelievable. I'm going to stay right here. Uh, but I wasn't, that far, so, I wasn't that visionary at the time. And so I sat there, and like most other Stanford law students at that time, what I decided to do was uh, you had to go to the big city to practice law. So I left this place where incredible things were already happening, and I went to a major law firm down in Los Angeles. Uh, the reason I chose Los Angeles, again, a very thoughtful decision, my girlfriend at the time was, go, was in law school down there, but I did marry her and I'm still married to her, so it worked out pretty well. In any event, I stayed down in Los Angeles for three years and then, again, being a visionary, I decided I really liked living in the Bay Area, not having a clue as to what, again what was really going on here in the Silicon Valley. Um, So I decided to move back to San Francisco. I got involved in the first of a series of Democratic presidential campaigns. And I know it's off-topic here, but I'd be glad to answer any questions about presidential politics, too, because I've kept that up uh, throughout my career. But at that point in time, and this was in 1984, uh, the beginning of 1985, that for the first time, I kind of woke up to what was really going on here in the Silicon Valley. And at that time, what I decided to do was um, join Wilson, Sonsini, Goodrich, and Rosati. And what that was, was uh, it was a high-tech law firm, about 50 people at the time, a lot of people said to me, you know, you're crazy. You've been working at the big, prestigious law firm. Uh, you have a lot of options available to you. Why are you doing that? But I have to tell you, it is the best move I made in my life. It has been an exciting ride. Uh, we've represented the you know, major Silicon Valley companies, not only of the Silicon Valley, but the world. And I'd be glad to talk about any of that as we go on. Uh, But it's just unbelievable being a part of changing the world, not only from the technology side, but from the life science, from the biotechnology side and medical devices and all the phenomenal things that are going on in the world in that regard. So one thing I think you can learn uh, if you guys are thinking about business is a little bit from what we did at Wilson Sonsini because we, came, we have always had a very simple mission statement. And we've kept with it throughout the years as many changes and many things have come and gone. And our mission statement is to be the leading technology, life science, and emerging growth lawyers. And that's it. We wanted to be the leading lawyers to the technology, life science, and emerging growth industries. And the one thing we have learned is stick with what you're good at. Go with your core strengths. Know where you're headed. Have a game plan and stick with it. And we have done that despite the fact that people have said to us, you should become a diversified law firm, you should go into asbestos litigation, you should do this, that, or the other thing. But we have had a simple model all the way along. And I'll describe that model and our strategy in a second. But one thing I also think you can learn from what the founders of our firm decided to to focus on a long time ago The law is a law. It's got its positives and its negatives. But the law or a law firm, like anything else, sells a product. And whether you start a high-tech company, a biotech company, um, Procter & Gamble, or Wilson Sonsini, the name of the game in business, and this has been hammered into me since I started at the firm, is brand. In any kind of business, you are building a brand. And to the extent that you can build a strong brand, it is likely to pay off big time for you. I mean look at the Google brand right now, the Apple brand right now. And what we have done at Wilson Sonsini is we decided that we wanted to build the best brand in the world in the representation of technology, life science, and emerging growth companies. We also have A very simple strategy. And after 20 years in the business of representing these companies, I find it incredible that when you cut right through it, the greatest companies start out and keep two fairly straightforward strategies. They're flexible, they move with the times, but they're pretty straightforward strategies. And I will tell you what we had at Wilson Sonsini. And again, you've seen a lot of these Silicon Valley companies that talk about strategies and the companies starting on the back of a napkin. Well, Wilson Sansini, believe it or not, our strategy started on the back of a napkin, or at least that's what our founders have told us so that we could get with the flow of what was going on in the valley. So we have a pretty simple strategy, and we call it, the three-circle strategy. Um, We want to represent the companies from day one, from when the entrepreneur first comes up with the idea, to becoming a multi-billion dollar company. and We break it down into what we call three circles. The first circle is the small private company, typically the venture-backed company. And what what we do is we work with the companies, we advise the companies, we work with them in finding the venture capitalists, we represent them when the venture capitalists or or the other money people are financing the company, and we do all their option work and all that kind of stuff that goes into representing the startup private company. And probably the most important role we play with respect to that company is a non-legal, Role, Because people like me and my partners and others in the industry have seen so many companies and so many successes and so many failures, the most important role that we can play with respect to that startup company is telling them what works, what doesn't work, and giving them our best judgment on how they should approach particular issues in the industry. In addition to the fact That And I'll talk about this in a few minutes, the network that we have and the relationships that we have that can be of tremendous benefit to what we call our first circle startup companies. The next part of that napkin is the second circle. When a company grows up, it has typically two exit mechanisms, actually three exit mechanisms. One you don't want. One is going out of business and bankruptcy and whatever, and that's probably the most likely exit mechanism for most companies. But the other two uh, can can lead tremendous, to tremendous success, and one of them is the sale of the company, and the other is going public. Um, with respect to the sale of the company, interestingly, what's going on in the industry right now is because of, Uh, Sarbanes-Oxley and the incredible regulations uh, that have come into being because of all the, the fraud and everything else that was going on in the Enrons of the world. Because we have this big regulatory structure that has been put in place, it's now more difficult to go public. And there are various other reasons why it's more difficult to go public. Analysts at the investment banks cover the small companies a lot less so than they used to do. Things like that that have made the hurdle for going public harder. So an exit, exit mechanism for a lot of companies in this day and age is to sell to, uh, to typically a bigger company and oftentimes another, a public company that will buy them. But the mechanism that you guys probably typical, typically hear about and what most people dream about is going public. And so when you got that first circle venture backed company, they will either sell or they will go public. And once they go public, then they get into what we call our second circle. And that is the young public company, what we typically call the company that goes from you know anywhere from 50 million dollars in value to a billion dollars in value. And again, the strategy of our firm is simple. Because we have developed these intense and deep relationships with the companies as they grow up, we want to, after we bring them public, be in a position to do all of their high-margin legal work. Now, what's going on in this day and age is a lot of these companies bring in general counsels, and they want to go out and get the best Legal, the best lawyers they can for any particular subject. So we spend a lot of time developing the deep expertise that our high-tech or biotech or other emerging growth companies need so that we will not give up that piece of the business. And then the third circle, uh, what we call the third circle, is the billion-dollar-plus companies, the Hewlett-Packard's of the world, Uh, the Sun Microsystems of the world. Those types of companies that, you know, are just mammoth companies with huge amounts of legal work that, again, our strategy is to service them uh, in the high-margin work because that is where the law firm, our law firm, makes its biggest economic gain. So that is a short background just to give you a sense of like every other company, law firms succeed, companies succeed when they have a clear mission statement, they have a clear strategy, they build brand, and they stick to it. So let me talk a little bit about the, uh, the Silicon Valley and some of the things I've seen around here that, that hopefully you can all learn from. And there's a little bit of some messages in here, although at the end of uh, my discussion here, what I'll do is list out some fundamental things I think are fairly obvious, uh, but always bear repeating. And the first thing is that the Silicon Valley is more than any other place in the world built on merit. It is built on merit And interestingly enough, and you may find this hard to believe, but it is built on diversity. And that is the strength, the core strength of the valley. And now when I use the term Silicon Valley, you know, it also expands way beyond the Silicon Valley. I'll talk a little bit about that. But the Silicon Valley is obviously now worldwide. But the one thing I noticed... And whenever I represent clients in other industries, in other parts of the world that are non-tech related, non-life science related, not emerging growth related, I see a different dynamic out there. And a lot of times you see structures in place that do not recognize merit. And in this industry, the beauty of it is you can take an idea from day one from that first circle, and you can, you know, work hard, dream big, and make it happen. And no one will prejudge you, no matter what age you are, no matter where you come from. Uh, it's pretty incredible. I will tell you, you know, Google, um, you know, I we hear the story all the time of the two founders, the two Stanford students that, you know, Dream this thing up right here at Stanford. Went into Larry Sonsini. And as, as with a lot of ideas, uh, I'm sure Larry sat there and said, you know, sounds interesting. These are good kids. I want to work with them and everything. Well, let me tell you something. They shot through that first, second, and third circle pretty quickly. And it's pretty amazing. But it's not just Google. There are examples of this from this university Constantly, and it's taking any idea and just working your butt off and going with it and making it big. You had Scott McNeely over at Sun Microsystems, a Stanford graduate. Right now, I'm representing a biotech company that uh, a young Stanford 21-year-old student, uh, one of my partners was telling me, a young man, 21 years old, brilliant, has come in with a software idea, and I uh, just got it funded, the, uh, and, and these are things that are coming out of Stanford all the time, uh, you know, I represented a company called Numerical Technologies, one of my favorite companies, and uh, it was a engineering, he had actually graduated from the engineering school, and I think he had accepted a professorship at Harvard. And he decide, he had this idea in the, uh, in the semiconductor industry, semiconductor equipment software. And he came back here. And uh, he's now living in a gorgeous place in Woodside and dreaming big about his, his next big venture. And he went from the first sec- circle to the second circle to the third circle. Actually, he probably sold at the top of the second circle. But these are the types of things uh, that are done not every day, but it's also not just the Googles of the world, and that is because this is a and, and all ethnic, different, diverse. You know, ethnic diversity is amazing. You know, we speak 60 different languages plus in the Silicon Valley, and if you go to our law firm, you will see that represented, represented, because we reflect the client base, and there's no prejudgment judging. That is the strength of the technology industry. The other thing is, and I'm sure you guys have heard this over and over again, but it's true. Failure is not a stigma. You know, one of my partners often says, if you get a resume from an entrepreneur and there isn't a list of chapter 11 companies on that entrepreneur's resume, then there's something wrong. And it's True, I mean let me let me qualify that a little bit. You may not want to be totally down the page, but you it, it is a situation where not taking the risk is a bigger failure than taking the risk, and that is just another beauty of the valley., hey, one other thing I have to tell you that is also true of the valley, and you know people don 't talk about this as much is the luck factor. Um, anything takes luck. You know, I've seen brilliant ideas with brilliant management teams work their tails off, and in the end, their timing was off because they just did not hit the market at the right window and everything. So that's something you can't control. Uh, but as I, as I tell the associates in my law firm, my kids, everyone that will listen to me, Uh, The one thing you can do is you can dream, you can work incredibly, incredibly hard because if you work incredibly hard, you at least put yourself in the place for luck to play itself out. The one other thing I want to comment on that hasn't really changed in the technology industry in the Silicon Valley is the ecosystem. I think Tom made some reference to that uh, in his opening remarks. The ecosystem is amazing in the Silicon Valley and again, it just expands way beyond the valley. So what do I mean by that? Uh, in a way, while it's open to everyone and merit can you know, wins out, there definitely is a set of players in the industry that you need to get to know and should get to know. And you know That is everywhere from the lawyers, and I like to think, by the way, that there's only lo- one law firm that you should get to know, although some might argue differently. But, you know, Wilson Sansini clearly is a part of that ecosystem. Um, we represent 2,000, at any one time we represent 2,000 to 3,000 private companies and 300 public companies. We know a lot of people. We have relationships with a lot of people. The same is true of the major accounting firms. The same is true of the major venture capital firms. All of these, and the same is true, by the way, with the major uh, significant entrepreneurs in the Valley, although a great idea and you know, hard work can break in t- into that area much easier. Um, But there's this ecosystem where everyone knows each other, everyone feeds off of each other, and it's important that if you're starting a company that you want to tap in to that ecosystem. And there are various ways at Wilson Sonsini where it pays off. Obviously, when an entrepreneur comes in, the first thing we do is sit there and listen to the idea, and we try to think of funding sources for them and we go, okay, is Kleiner Perkins or NEA or Mayfield or whatever, all these people that I've worked with for the last twenty years, an idea comes into me and I sit there and I say, let's feed it to a venture capitalist that I have a relationship that I respect and blah, blah, blah. Um, all of that feeds off of each other. It, it's also in the way things are done. There are certain ways the legal work is done. That believe it or not, if an entrepreneur goes to a lawyer outside this core group in the valley, they'll have their legal work done differently. And when it comes to getting the company funded by a venture capitalist, they'll often take a look at it and they'll go, What is this all about? You know, why didn't they have Series A preferred stock? Why did they just issue common stock and you know their accounting is all messed up and all that kind of stuff? And it's one issue on the table for the venture capitalist to end up saying no to the financing when it would be nice just to have a cookie cutter thing that takes that issue off the table. So there's just a way of doing things in the valley that if you're starting a company um, or if you're at a company, you really want to tap into. Now let me talk about some of the things um, that have changed and and I'll only spend a few minutes on this and then some lessons learned and then I'll open it up to questions here. Are you keeping track of the time? (laughs) Um, The the one thing that seems to constantly change is the industry itself and the types of things that we're working on and that's why if you decide to go into the high-tech industry you're going to find things constantly, constantly changing. Um, the 1970s, when I was here at Stanford, that was probably the era of, of what people call some of the bricks and mortar of the technology industry. Um, that was a time when semiconductors, you know, some of these great semiconductor uh, companies started to be formed. Companies like Intel, who we did not represent. Uh, but LSI Logic, Monolithic Memories, Cypress Semiconductor, some of the great semiconductor companies of the 1970s. And everyone thought when that boom happened and everything, well, what was next for the Valley? And then I came in in the 1980s. And what happened in the 1980s was the era of computers. Now, I came in right before... The, the, huge boom, the huge boom of the late 80s. But I will tell you that with respect to what happened there in the 80s was you had the Apple computers. Uh, you had many companies like that, the Sun Microsystems with Scott McNeely coming out, coming out of Stanford and starting it. Uh, I remember right after the boom, I picked up Time magazine, and this was shortly after I'd come up here, and the, uh, the cover of Time magazine said, is the Silicon Valley, has the Silicon Valley gone bust? And I remember calling my friend and going, oh, God, you know, here I thought I made this brilliant move and come into the Silicon Valley. You know, it, looks like, it looked like it was going to be interesting. And now we've seen the best days behind us because the best computing days were, uh, were the, those public offerings had taken place and everything. But then, of course, came the 1990s. And the 1990s uh, were the era of information technology and the Internet. And I can't even begin to describe to you what went on in the 1990s. It was the most unbelievable boom. Uh, I will tell you some of the lessons learned from that boom. When I was in the middle of it, i I thought and I was in the middle of the most amazing change in the in world history, and that was the way we felt around here. We talked about you know the industrial revolution, and we were in the middle of the information revolution, and these companies uh, were coming up with phenomenal ideas and were changing the world and everything, but we also learned a lot of lessons during that time. Uh, people were throwing plans together, getting funded. No one was worried about future revenues. Uh, the, the, the building blocks of management, putting in place you know, a firm management structure, all of that was out the window in the 90s. And we all did very well and then got very burnt. Uh, but we did learn a lot of lessons. But the one thing we also learned was that was just a cycle, and things would once again change. And so here we are in the 2000 era. And I'm not sure, in the end, what this era will be called. I will tell you that Carly Fiorina, who uh, was a former CEO of Hewlett-Packard, and uh, Hewlett-Packard's a client of our firm, described this era as a digital, mobile, personal, and virtual era. And I think she's probably right with respect to that description. Digital, to the extent that uh, everything is compact in this stage of the game. You know, all the data is compressed. Uh, Mobile, probably. I'm impressed that none of you are checking your email as we speak. Um, Maybe plenty of people online are, but mobile, because uh, the minute I walk outside this room, I will pick up my BlackBerry. Uh, and see what's been going on in the office. Personal, because we all have come up with our own personal plans. And it's just everything is more personal out there in this day and age. And virtual, to the extent that infrastructure doesn't matter, geography doesn't matter, everything's all over the world. And, of course, we have so much going on right now, the whole biotechnology uh, phenomenon that in my time at Wilson Sonsini, I've seen gone through, go through different waves and everything. But right now, some of the things that we're discover, that our companies are discovering in biotechnology is just amazing. Uh, one of the areas that our firm is getting heavily involved in is the clean air, clean energy phenomenon that's going on. A couple of years ago, a group of our attorneys sat there. We have a very entrepreneurial firm, so everyone can decide what they want to do. And a couple of our attorneys uh, sat there and said, you know, we think there's going to be a big wave uh, because of uh, the energy crisis in this country. We think there'll be a big clean technology wave coming through. And, uh, And we are now seeing funds being formed and everything. Uh, with respect to clean technology. And we're going to see a lot of companies in that regard being funded. The one other thing that uh, I think is self-evident, but I wanted to comment on in the way things have changed, is besides technology always changing, the industries always changing, the whole geographic phenomenon has changed everything. When we were um, growing up at Wilson Sonsini, we were a one-office firm here in the Silicon Valley. And almost every great technology company you you could count on, at least a significant portion of them, coming out of the valley. It's no longer the case. The valley is global at this stage of the game. And we, at Wilson, we have now opened up, at first we started opening up uh, offices all over the country because we wanted to be close to the entrepreneur. <clears throat> so now we have offices up in Seattle because of all the spin-offs that were coming out of Microsoft. We have offices down in Austin, Texas, where Dell and you know, a great many companies are being formed. Uh, Reston, Virginia, where the whole telecommunications sector really grew up. Even Salt Lake City, we have, uh, we have an office there because of both technology and some of the biotechnology uh, that's coming out of Salt Lake City. We have also found that we've had to go global. And what we're seeing on a global basis is uh, very interesting and very sobering. I will tell you, I was when probably about six or seven years ago, I got interested in Israel saw a lot of technology that was going on in Israel, so I decided to develop that practice for the law firm. And we've seen great technology and great technology companies coming out of Israel, particularly in the security area, like Checkpoint Software, that's now a client of our firm. Um, but now we're really focused on on China and India. Uh, a sobering fact is, and I believe this was in the San Francisco Chronicle this week, and I still read the Chronicle because I'm from San Francisco. You guys probably don't even recognize that paper. But the, uh, the, in China last year, they graduated 500,000 engineers. In India, 200,000. And in the United States, 70,000. Um, so that tells you where this industry is going. And for anyone that's interested in the, uh, in, in the technology industry, I will tell you the, the probably best language you could take, if there's still time, is Chinese. Um, we are opening an office in Shanghai within the next couple of months. We have a team already of 15 lawyers that are focused exclusively on China. In India... Uh, we represent some of the great Indian companies, Infosys, Wipro, and we're just seeing unbelievable companies come out of there. So there's the, the one thing that has changed is when you talk about the Silicon Valley, the Silicon Valley is global, although something that's very interesting is a lot of people still come here to get experience, to start their companies, and then go back, to wherever they want to uh, live their lives and start their companies. So that ecosystem still comes into place because you develop these relationships right here in the Silicon Valley. So let me end. I'll probably run a little long here. Let me just quickly go through four or five things that are takeaways or advice that I want to give you. Number one is take risks. It's a given You will never regret it, particularly while you're young. Don't think twice about it. Take the risk. That's what built these great companies. Number two, don't be afraid to take a step back in your career if you think it will help you move forward in the long run. And I use myself as an example of that. I was a litigator down in Los Angeles. When I came up here, I came to Wilson, and Wilson wanted me to be a litigator. And they said, if you, if you, uh, if you do litigation, we'll make you a partner in w- within one year, which was unheard of at the time. But if you decide to do corporate, which in all honesty, we don't need corporate lawyers right now. And by the way, at the time we were 50, we're now 600. Um, you know you're basically starting your career over because it's a new discipline. I made the decision to start my career over, and it is the smartest thing I've ever done. And whenever I had a chance to give anyone advice in any industry, i say never hesitate to take a step back if ultimately it's what you want to do and you think it will propel you forward. Third and this is from John Wooden's book. When I became the CEO of Wilson Sonsini, I was given all these management books and everything. I actually read a lot of them. Um, but what he said is it takes ten hands to make a basket. And that's true. No matter what company you go to, you know there's the visionary, there's this, that, and the other thing. There's always the star. But you surround yourself by good people. Um, give credit to other people. It takes 10 hands to make a basket. The next thing is, and this has been important, I felt it in being the CEO of the firm, and I see the best CEOs in the Valley let everyone reach for the stars. We have an unbelievably incredible talent pool right here in the Silicon Valley. The best CEOs, the best entrepreneurs, are the ones that give everyone the opportunity to reach for the stars. Because as I said, merit rules out, and sometimes you will be surprised at who in the end actually reaches the star. So give everyone the opportunity to do so. Two more things. Little things really matter. They build into big things, and that's execution. You can have the greatest management team in the world, the greatest idea in the world, the greatest three circles on the napkin or whatever your strategy is, and if you don't execute the little things, it doesn't make a bit of difference. Your company will fail. And finally, and probably the most important, is integrity integrity matters more than anything you will do in your career because it is a small ecosystem, because you develop networks all over the world. If you maintain your integrity and maintain your values, and they will always be put to the test, but if you do, you will never look back. And I I will tell you, when I first came into this industry, I met a guy named Ken Oshman who is – one of the luminaries of the technology industry. And I had the opportunity uh, to represent him. He was a founder of Rome Corporation, which was a huge corporation at one point in time and then sold out to IBM. Um, And he is now the CEO of a company called Echelon Corporation. And he has been the epitome of a role model for me as far as integrity. I've just seen it in everyone he deals with, every employee in his company. And in the end, he is, when people sit there and, they, and magazines sit there and they say, who's their ideal CEO, who's their ideal board member, he's always on the list. It, it always it, it is the most important thing you can do. So with that, I think I've gone over my time limit, but um, I will open it up for questions. And I'm sorry you and the... Uh, Cyberland can't can't ask questions, but and actually, if you could use these little microphones in front of you, because I guess the television audience can only hear that way. That's a strategic advantage that we have over our competitors, the big New York firms, the big L.A. firms, and that is we believe that's an investment uh, representing these companies because the Googles of the world don't have money starting out, and so we routinely sit there and say, you know, we will work with you until you get funded, and we would like to get paid once you get funded. If you don't get funded, we will take the risk Along with you. And so a lot of times we don't get paid for the startup company. Uh, we try to keep the legal work to a minimum, uh, but it pays dividends in a couple of ways. Number one, you know, you get the client and you develop the relationship early. But number two, you get it in tremendous malloyalty. And as those companies grow up, they remember. They remember the law firm that was with them from the very beginning. It's a competitive advantage for us because many of our, you know, New York, LA law firms and everything won't do that because their economic models don't allow them to do that. So we see it as an advantage. Yeah. If you were to uh, categorize the new business country right now, how would you segment it in terms of industry? Is it biotech mobile? Yeah, uh, there's a lot of wireless. Uh, that we're seeing, we are seeing a tremendous amount of wireless. We're seeing a tremendous amount of security, security software. We are seeing a tremendous amount of biotech. Um, You know, obviously in the 90s we saw the Internet and everything, and we're still seeing a fair amount of that, but it is much more difficult to start those companies, obviously, than it was then. Uh, But that's mostly what we're seeing. And, but I will tell you, if you ask me that same question 12 months from now, you know it will probably be a different answer. Security is still a big phenomenon out there that a lot of companies are concerned with. Yeah. A um, question about India and China. So traditionally, if you look back five, six years, India and China are either in services or writing code for other larger... Cetera, companies so the ones that you are looking at now are they coming out with their own products uh, do you see a trend there and if so what industries um, I mean we, we see a huge trend and that's the, the statistic that I I assume everyone could hear that question the statistic that I said with respect to the engineers that are graduating from India and China and everything is um a tremendous trend towards getting away from just services to software to semi, some of the great semiconductor companies are over in China. Um, you know, in Israel, we're seeing if, if you're talking globally and everything in Israel, we're seeing a lot of security. We're seeing a lot of life science. Um, really, you know the different they're getting involved a lot of software coming out of India a lot of great software companies and stuff. So it's changed a lot with respect to, as opposed to just services type things, actually cutting-edge technology that we've seen coming out of these countries. I'll tell you what hasn't changed that will have to change with time. And I experienced this in Israel. When I first started developing the practice in Israel... um, There was not a; they didn't practice. Their entrepreneurs, their companies, uh, did not operate under the same rules that the U.S. companies operated under. And the same thing applies with respect to the Chinese companies, with respect to the India, Indian companies. And where it has an impact is it you have the venture capitalists being much more cautious, although they're moving aggressively forward, much more cautious in how they invest their money. Because, again, they're used to an ecosystem. They're used to certain ways of doing business. And you know, the fact that China has not historically respected intellectual property rights is a huge problem. And one of the things that you know, we're banking on in entering China is that things will change. And we do see things slowly changing, that you know you have to play by the international rules uh, in order to get the fi- you know your companies financed and all that. But for example, most of the companies that we get involved in, with our venture capitalists, we're investing in China or India for that matter, end up incorporating offshore, because they don't want to be. You know, subject to the Chinese jurisdiction with respect to um, with respect to their investments. So there's still a long ways to go with respect to uh, you know. I don't want to say they don't play by the rules, but they do play by different rules, um, and that's going to have to change in order for everything to really come together on a global basis. Yeah that most of the venture money is coming internally in those countries or a lot of it is coming from the US and specifically Silicon Valley? I think, you know, I haven't seen the statistics. So this is a, you know, uneducated, um, uneducated statement with respect to that. But what we see is the money and, and what we're involved with is the money from here going there. So there's a tremendous amount of foreign money going into Chinese companies, India companies. And the other thing that we are seeing is the major venture capital funds um, and even some of the entrepreneurs who have made it are starting funds specifically focused on China or specifically focused on India, and they're actually opening offices over there. With respect to the, the actual venture capital in those countries, I think, and, and again, I'm not sure, but I think it's a fairly new industry. I mean, you know, venture capital here is well-developed and, and you know, it goes back 30, 40 years. Um, over in China and India, it's pretty new. So I, I assume that the domestic funds are beginning To form, but what you really have is a lot of foreign money coming into it. In Israel and Europe, there are quite a few funds that have already been there for several years. Does that answer your question? Yeah. You mentioned uh, that you've done some work with presidential politics. Uh, You kind of left us hanging. Uh, I have lots of strong opinions politically, but I'm curious what yours (laughs) are. Well, we're on television here, and so i got to be very careful with respect. Listen, I I can confidently tell you that you should not listen to my opinions because I have, beginning in 1984, I've been a strong Democrat. I first got involved in Walter Mondale's campaign. Since then, I was heavily involved uh, as a close friend of Bill Bradley and was involved in his presidential campaign, John Kerry's presidential campaign uh, a couple of years ago, and the only campaign that I skipped, uh, and because we're on television, I'm not going to say why, was Bill Clinton's presidential campaign. So I can tell you that the one thing I've always been able to say is I consistently lose. Um, I'm still trying to figure out... uh, you know, what we're going to do in, uh, in 2008. But uh, I don't know where your guys' political leanings are. I think that the overall, I will tell you this, I think the Democrats are better for the technology industry. Yeah, uh, you mentioned about uh, the ecosystem here. Yeah. So, you know, Western sun Siemens are part of the ecosystem. So if you go to China or other places... And if the company is there, is basically the targeting their domestic market, then what would be your value add? Because in that case, you need to have a relationship with the, you know, the institutions and you know, the are selling to. Are you developing that? Yeah, well, you know, to be honest with you, I'm not sure where our value add, where Wilson Sonsini's value add is to a company that is formed in China that is focused on the China market. But if there is a company that is being formed with cutting-edge technology that is focused on the global economy, our value add comes in in several different respects. Number one, we know what the venture capitalists are looking for in funding a company. We know the venture capitalists who can fund the company, when it comes time in developing the company, we sit there and we say, here's how you give out stock options to your employees. Here's what you do, and here's what you don't do. Because when it comes time to go public, all this stuff has to be understandable, clean. We know how to incentivize employees. Um, The securities securities laws, by the way, speaking specifically of China, and this is a little off-topic, Uh, I believe we've been contacted by the Chinese authorities who have... And and when I was over in China, I guess two years ago, I met with some of the securities, uh, the people that are forming the securities laws in China. They are trying to develop an infrastructure, a legal structure, that in many ways is consistent with what we do. So we have value-add with respect to that. our value add is with respect to structuring transactions uh, with their partners and everything, and representing you know 3,000 companies over the years. We've seen all kinds of deals and everything. And most of these companies just don't focus on, or the ones we're interested in, and the ones that are venture capitalists, uh, that the funding sources are interested in, they're interested in more of the global companies. So we've structured all kinds of. Strategic deals and partnerships and that kind of stuff. Uh, we've done mergers and acquisitions so we can help, uh, you know, sell the company or buy companies that are U.S. companies or foreign companies. So that's part of the the value add that I'm talking about. Our firm does not, and this is getting probably into a level of detail that you don't want. Um, we don't focus on the domestic. China companies that are just focused on that market because in all honesty, that's not where we add value and that's that's not the companies we understand. Yeah. Okay. So, how, like say you're a young entrepreneur and you want to start, start a global company in India or China. How is the process different than, say, doing it here? I mean, especially with the language barrier? And... Well, I think that, uh, you know, if you're a young entrepreneur uh, and you want to, I guess one of the reasons people go over to China and India right now is the cost structure. Um, you know, we have, and there's probably two reasons. Number one, the cost structure, and second of all, that's where they want to live. Um, You know, we have a lot of Indians and Chinese that have come here, gone to school here, uh, started, been involved in companies here, but want to live back home. And that's the primary reason that people go over there. Now, what a lot of companies do is start here and have subsidiaries over there. And there's a couple of different reasons. Um, Number one, they're huge markets. So you want to be where your huge markets are. And number two... The talent pool there's an increasingly great talent pool you know in China, in India, with a cost structure that is significantly less than it is here. But most companies you know that want to quote "start a company," and what I would advise a company do is, you know if you're from the United States, I wouldn't go over there to start a company. I would start the company here if it makes sense. You know, to have an office or subsidiary division or whatever over there to capital, you know, as, to capitalize on the markets and the talent pool and the cost structure. Um, but overall, it's the same reason a lot of companies actually, in order to become part of the ecosystems, choose to locate their main headquarters here. Um, and even Israeli companies, you know, for example, they usually incorporate their parent here in the United States because they want to be a U.S. company and they want to be seen as a U.S. company and yet they have their subsidiary over there where they have their talent pool and stuff, although that obviously Israel is a small market. Thank you. All right, thanks a lot.